I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to my podcast, Conversations of Inspiration. Founder of Not On The High Street and Holly & Co, I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses. I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. And my dream is to help everyone start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the greatest way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to all my favourite small businesses, acclaimed entrepreneurs and those who just simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to our sponsor NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down where we're going. Hello everyone. Just to let you know, it's the last week to get your ticket to the biggest day in the Holly & Co calendar, the Congregation of Inspiration 2019. The latest exciting news is that we're going to be recording a live podcast on the day and the guest will be none other than the artist Rob Ryan. Rob's inspired me since the start of my entrepreneurial journey. His beautiful paper cut works are breathtaking and I personally have always wanted to own one. So I'm beyond excited that not only will we get to hear his story, but he's offering an exclusive colourway as the Congregation of Inspirations poster. You'll be able to buy this exclusively at our event to celebrate this year's get together. And we'll also be selling his book that you can get signed. The rest of our lineup is phenomenal, with speakers such as Fern Cotton, Freddie Harrell, and Charlie Gladstone, including some of our inspiring podcast alumni, such as Pippa Murray, founder of Pippa Nut, Wilfred Emmanuel Jones, founder of The Black Farmer, Edward Perry, founder of Cook, Sahar Hashimi, founder of Coffee Republic, Dave Buonaguidi, artist and founder of Karmarama, and Emily Coxhead, founder of The Happy Newspaper. There's also going to be an opportunity to shop, eat and drink from your favourite podcast guests. We'll have Andy from Vinegar and Brown Paper selling his beautifully etched glass, Emily Coxhead's Happy Newspapers, Sipsmith Gin on the Bar, Curb Food Traders and Dave will be selling some seriously cool prints. So I just can't believe how lucky we're all going to be. It is the ticket to get if you are a small business or dreaming of starting one. The day will be filled with inspiration, advice and a chance, I suppose, just to make new friends and meet your community. And of course, it will be an Instagrammable extravaganza with so many Holly & Co magical details. And don't forget, the entire ticket is a legitimate business expense. I know we tend to also put ourselves at the bottom of the priority list, especially if you run your own business. But please make sure you invest in yourself. The feedback from last year was just totally stunning. I remember one lady said it was the inspiration she needed to take her forwards from that day to the rest of her life. I mean, wow. I want to give you all that energy and inspiration to either kickstart your business or just spark a huge amount of passion within you. Because remember, you only have 29,000 days on this planet. 
Don't waste a single moment being unhappy. Our partner NatWest will also be helping to support you on your journey, offering you the opportunity to record your free ad break for this podcast live and helping you with advice on funding and entrepreneurial support. And in true Holly & Co style, we'll also have lots of surprises throughout the day, including goosebumpy entertainment and life-changing content. And because we want you to concentrate on what's being said, we'll have a brilliant company scribing the minutes of the day so you don't have to. All you have to do is turn up in your most colourful, glittery, most you attire and relax in your chair, ready to be utterly blown away. I want the day to be life-changing for you and I'm making it my mission to do so. Believe me, every second of my day is putting in every effort and love to make sure all congregation of inspiration attendees have the time of their lives. If you'd like to join the tribe, you can get the last remaining tickets on our website, holly.co. I just cannot wait to see you there. This week on Conversations of Inspiration, I'm speaking to Will Ramsey, founder of the Affordable Art Fair. I've been a huge fan of Will's and his business for a long time now, often making the trip to Battersea to drool over the beautifully curated affordable art. Each year I give myself a good talking to about how there isn't a need to buy something every single year and it's safe to say I have failed on every occasion. Will's got the most fantastic, playful eye for art, so there's always something for everyone. We finally met at the Holly & Co workshop where we recorded this podcast and hit it off instantly, talking non-stop about our huge shared passion for art. We spoke about his unique upbringing, being part of a military dynasty with a very significant grandfather and how that shaped his life as an entrepreneur, especially when he took the leap over to the more creative world. Will founded the Affordable Art Fair just over 20 years ago with a purpose to democratise the art world, which at the time was deemed snooty and only one for the upper elite. His business has not only made it easier for more people to buy art, but the greatest opportunity it has given is to the artists themselves. I had no idea that the average artist made between seven and £8,000 a year. His expansive knowledge for running a successful and now international business meant that he shared such sage advice throughout the podcast. And please make sure you listen to the end. His letter to self is such a poignant one that will stay with me forever. I had such a teary moment reflecting on what my words would be to Harry. Hi, Will. It's so lovely to finally meet you. I am fanatical about art and make it my yearly treat to visit my local affordable art fair, which is in Battersea. And I have bought so many things over time because it's exactly what it says. 
it's affordable. I love art with a sense of humour or playfulness. So I've bought things such as a zebra head with a Ziggy Stardust bolt of lightning across his eye. Huge prints of worn silver converse. Um, and actually the list goes on, but I can't say this on air because I think my Frank might be listening. So I always promise him I'm not buying anything more. <laughs> You'll be glad to know. And I always sneakily buy a little something. So thank you for founding your wonderful business. Can I also just say a huge congratulations to you as your business recently reached a significant milestone. You turned 20 years old. Is that right? That's right. And also in our 20th year, we've had half a million artworks have just been passed, have oh been bought it over the years. So it's that's... like it timed itself for you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and let's try and double that to a million artworks in the next 10 years. Fantastic. Um, I'll be helping that number. Don't you worry, yeah. Will. I will be helping that number. I'd love to talk to you later about you celebrating this um, birthday, or I like to call it business anniversaries. And we actually have a card next door, um, if you'd like to buy one for anybody, that we've actually created cards that celebrate business birthdays and anniversaries. So we feel like it's a really important thing that people recognise when they've grown their business over the years oh yeah especially the biggest card has got to be if you survive the first two years <laughs> you're right product development on the fly here but I'd, <laughs> I'd first love to start with your story your background and growing up as you had a very significant grandfather yeah uh he featured on on antiques roadshow last night no less i um, know i saw uh, did you? <laughs> yes yeah. it was with your brother and sister is that That's right? right yes yeah yeah yeah. so he managed to be the guy who um brought a third of a million people back from dunkirk beaches and harbour and then four years later he sent uh the same kind of numbers in the first 10 days, over to Normandy, he was the naval commander of D-Day. So big shoes to fill, and he's been a, a big sort of driving force of thinking, well, I've got a quarter of these genes, I've got to do something with them. I mean, I can, a little bit of pressure, I can imagine, because <laughs> I started reading up about him, actually, and my son and I started to research his achievements, and he's someone we owe so much to in this country. Everyone should know his name. I read that what he executed was described as never surpassed masterpiece of planning, coordinating and commanding a fleet of almost is this right? Correct me if I'm wrong here, Will. 7,000 vessels to deliver over 160,000 men onto the beaches of Normandy on D-Day with over 875,000 um, disembarked by the end of June. It's just absolutely astounding. Oh, yeah. The planning was just immense. Yeah, it was the biggest armada the world has ever seen, will ever see. He clearly followed, he probably didn't know it, but I follow the seven Ps, which is a military thing. Prior preparation and planning prevents piss-poor performance. <laughs> is this a British seven Ps by any chance? It's a sort of army thing. And there is a statue of him at Dover Castle, and I'm, I'm going to take my son Harry to go and see him, because... This is quite an incredible family history to be part of. As you said, he was on the Antiques Roadshow with your brother and sister last night and they were showing all his medals. I mean, it looked like the most unbelievable framed 
group of medals that I'd ever seen. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. I think partly because he was in the Navy in 1899 when the Boer War happened. He then was in World War I and, and, and then World War II. But in World War II, he got a medal from or more from each of the other Allied countries, or most of them anyway. And so there's quite a, quite a diversity there, including the Russian Order of Ushakov, which uh, is very rarely given out. And his name, for anyone listening, I've realised we haven't actually said his name, is Admiral Ramsey, is that right? Mm. What was his first name? Bertram. So Bertram. my middle name is Bertram. Bertram. I love uh, or that. Or Bertie. He got called Bertie. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. And so what was it like then growing up in such a military dynasty? Yeah, so he was the third of... of I, I was the fifth of generation to go into the armed forces. His grandfather had, had served at Waterloo and and then his, his, his father didn't really have a huge amount of active service. He, interestingly, <laughs> commanded Churchill... And Churchill wrote home to his mother, Colonel Ramsey takes my advice on most matters. I mean, what a <laughs> so-and-so to write yes. that as a young 20. But his cockiness got him, yes. got him somewhere, didn't yes, it? Yes, it did, it did. So was it, did you feel that you had pressure from a young age yes. to follow in those footsteps or that you yeah. needed to live up to something? Yeah, I did. My father was in the army. He was very nice about it, or very cunning, in that I never felt throttled to join the army, but he suggested it. Why don't you join the... And, and looking back, it was great leadership experience, which any person running a business needs to have. Needs to have. So was it, there was this strong military presence in your household, obviously, growing up. Was there a love for art too? So where did this creative passion, do you think, stem from? There was not a creative bone in... <laughs> I, I can honestly say this in my parents' bodies. I think they wouldn't have me hang, hung, drawn and quartered for saying that. But it was an art teacher at school who inspired me. He told me when I was 14, well, that's really, really good, Ramsey. And I thought, really, is it? And, and he kept saying it. And so I thought, well, maybe I have got some sort of talent. Anyway, anyway I enjoyed it, whether I was talented or not, to the extent that I then did art and art history at A-level and, um, and kept up things from there. And so that, that was the beginning. Inspirational art teacher, I'm sure a lot of people... His name out. is John Booth, is that right? Yes. Yes, John Booth. So shout out to John Booth. Thank goodness for him. Have you ever tried to track it back, you know, sort of join the dots? You know, where, do you think maybe it's the entrepreneurial side with your love for art as a, as a, a distinct human being separated to your family that, that drew you to what you're doing? Or do you think that they're, I don't know, back in your ancestry there was a love for creativity or do you think it's that leadership and entrepreneurship that got you hooked on running your own I loved organizing things and 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 that's why I made the decision to be an entrepreneur I loved organizing parties at university Scottish reeling parties and 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 organized rugby weekends away to tour and drink too much and and so I realised, yeah, that's my thing, is organising. And, and that obviously got from my grandfather, but took a different sort of twist. And the art thing, it, it, my, my grandmother did a bit of painting, and so it may have come from there, but uh, it 
may have been in me. I don't know. You don't know. But you you went on to study geography at university. And then, as you said, you joined the army yourself. Um, what was that time like in your life? Because I've spoken to several entrepreneurs that were in the army and they found themselves actually kicked out so you don't get kicked out um, my dear friend Wilfred Emmanuel Jones um, from uh, who created a business called the Black Farmer he said this on our podcast that basically you know there was no way he was an entrepreneur so an entrepreneur is there to break the rules so yeah. you didn't find yourself rebelling uh, well I kind of did but I did it with a smile. I think I was luckily <laughs> born with this sort of huge smile. You do. I'm smile. looking at this lovely and, smile. And, I, and that maybe meant that I didn't because my commanding officer, my wife asked him the other day, she said, what was Will like to command? Because she knows I'm just terrible at, at being told what to do. And uh, he said, well, he'd, he'd smile sweetly and say, yes, of course, sir, and then do exactly what he wanted to do. So I was never going to get uh, very far with that approach, I think. So it's true. So, so far, I've got a 100%. The entrepreneurs that come out of the army, they are entrepreneurs. You know, they're not following that many orders. Yeah, but you're right. You've got to, they've got to disrupt and, and think differently and outfox the enemy. And so I, I think there are actually a surprising number of, of people who are in the army who could run a business, but it's just too alien. Yeah. And so maybe that's what I can help, where you're helping entrepreneurs full stop, I can maybe help ex-forces to be yeah, entrepreneurs. what an idea. Hmm. What an idea. We okay. should talk about that. And upon leaving the army, what did you do after that? So founding your business, the Affordable Arts Fair, what, what was that like those beginning days well the first bit going into the into the art world was I started a gallery first called Will's Art Warehouse it was a bit of riff of majestic wine warehouse I thought they'd made wine accessible along with odd bins and and the supermarkets and and I thought let's try and do the same for art they're both things that people maybe feel a bit embarrassed about if they don't know about them so that was the first idea was to was basically to make art accessible and to democratise it and take away the fear factor. And so the first way I tried to do it was through my gallery, Wills Up Warehouse. It's still going, but the three galleries that I did have two years later then whittled down to one, and I changed tack onto uh, Affordable Art Fair, which was bringing in all the other perfectly friendly, affordable places. But when you're faced with an, an empty gallery and you peer through the window and you see someone on at the end, you sort of think, oh, God, I might be asked a scary question. or, uh, And so by bringing them all into this one environment with music playing and friendliness, and it's called Affordable Art Fair, people know exactly on the tin what it is that they're going to. That then enabled me to reach a much bigger number of people than I could ever do. I, I didn't realise, of course, wine, you can have thousands of bottles the same, art it's one or it might be an addition piece so stock control would have been a nightmare because <laughs> it was it started back in 1999 is that right and mm. and and that was so the, what's so interesting is is that you made it your mission to as you say democratize the art world and you basically saw how as you said it was absolutely crazy if you think about it in terms of retail you know let's make the scariest of 
showrooms with the most unfriendliest of people and try and sell the most expensive of products. It, it, now you just think about it and you think, my goodness, no one, no one sort of thought that one through. Yeah. That, yeah, that yeah. was the thing, because it's interesting, isn't it, for anyone listening, thinking of maybe businesses or um, where they consume at the moment and just thinking about that's what an entrepreneur does. They look at that issue that people are facing and maybe it, the model is already out there, but they just swap, swap it around or add their USP and yours was art. Tell me, it's, it's such a brilliant concept and you called it the Affordable Arts Fair. I like to call them Ron Seal businesses because not in the high street was exactly the same. We only had Amazon and eBay um, and it needed to say exactly what it did on the tin. And was it true that people were very sceptical about your business idea? And how did you deal with those naysayers? I had exactly the same. You know, you had people tell you that you it wasn't going to succeed. Yeah, that's right. And there was one guy who I, before I set up Wills Up Warehouse, it must have been about 95, I, he was a friend of a friend's and he had a gallery and it had been going for a few years. So I sent him my business plan. I said, you know, what do you think? And he, I sent it to him in advance and then I came to meet him and, and he sort of threw it on the coffee table in front of me and said, it's never going to work. And because uh, he was just thinking in the zone of how everyone had sold art before, which was exclusivity. And, and my approach was about inclusivity. And uh, anyway, it was rather lovely that about five years later, he called me up or emailed me or something and said, can I have a stand at Affordable Art Fair? So uh, that was nice. That was a nice moment. But did you have other people tell you? What did your family think? And um, how did you navigate yourself? Because, it, you know, as entrepreneurs or people, that, you know, you have to have a lot of self-belief, don't you? You have to run on your own Duracell battery. Yeah, single-mindedness, drive. And so, yeah, you do need help. And I didn't get any, oh, you can't start a business you can't do this this is bonkers from any family it was they were amazingly supportive actually i wish i'd had a mentor actually what just uh, someone I, just to call at the end of the night and chew well, a someone who's through, been or... there done that i think is really valuable and it doesn't have to be exactly the same product or someone who's just not family who can be a bit independent and can tell you how it is and and i remember when I was leaving the army thinking, I'm not gonna bother spending a couple of years working in a gallery to build up experience. I'm just gonna go for it and learn by my mistakes. And that's what I did. But if I'd had a mentor, those mistakes wouldn't have perhaps been as great. As great as that. Or they would have <laughs> yeah. told you, go and get a job in an art gallery. What are you talking about? <laughs> Maybe, but it, you know, I might've listened to them. Uh, I, I hope I would have, but I might've ignored them and just, stuff it but at least my my thinking had been questions would have been questions yeah and and that's important isn't it because you do have to be so single-minded when you build something as you said you know you've got to believe if you don't believe then it's never going to succeed but just having someone test you now and again um and actually feel in a safe space you know that they're testing you not because they want you to fail Actually, they're testing you to make your product better or to move you forward. But it's hard to find a mentor, as you said. Do you feel that it's, um, as you said, not important that it's in the same field? 
yeah, doesn't have to be at all. And actually it might help you spot the gap in the market taking skills from a different market. And if people were sceptical, how did you go about actually funding your business? Because I I try and ask this a lot more on this podcast, because one of the things that I've heard from the small business community is this is where the fear is. You know, this fear about funding a business, getting it set up, taking loans or taking investment. And that actually, um, very much amongst women, actually, that there is this fear of taking on money. Tell me about what your, how you started up. Well, one angle first, which I think is so important if you want to start a business, is, is you've got to start it when your risk is lower. So it's really hard to do it if you've got a child who you've got to you know, feed and get nappies for, or if you've got a mortgage or whatever. So, so there's a sweet spot, I reckon, where you feel you've got enough experience and you know enough about what you're doing, but you're not so far on in, in life's commitments for that to hold you back. So that, that's one angle. That's a good piece of advice. And in, in, in terms of funding, I was really lucky. I'm, I say to people, I'm partly an entrepreneur, but I'm also lucky sperm because I was born into a family that were able to educate me privately. I had a fantastic education. So I had inherited some money age 25, and I was prepared to risk all of that, which I did. I managed to get an overdraft facility, and that's what I used. It got to 96% of it was used up. Because you got a hundred thousand pound overdraft, didn't you? Yeah, and it was at ninety six thousand pounds that it started to come down. <laughs> and hair raising times. Oh, and 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 the re the first chunk it came down was uh, for a tax rebate, and so thanks to them. So I do feel strongly. I've always I feel very British, but I. I sort of toyed about five years ago, or my finance guy did, about sort of moving profits offshore or, or to a different country with lower corporation tax rates. And I thought, no, this is where I feel I want to do my bit and pay my taxes. So um, the other thing which really strikes home when I think about that 96,000 and, and where I got to is is you've got to be flexible and no plan A works. And it's, it might be plan B, it might be plan C, it might be plan D, but you've got to keep changing things, trying new things. And it was that change from thinking I was going to do Majestic Wine Warehouse for Art through, through a gallery, but doing it using other galleries in Affordable Art Fair, that made the difference. So that was sort of plan C, probably. So you've got to keep flexible and don't keep one track minded. Every week there's an opportunity to have your very own ad break on this podcast and it's all thanks to our partner NatWest. NatWest's mission is to empower entrepreneurs and so they're offering their very own ad break on this very podcast to any small business listening to help promote themselves for free. For your chance to win this incredible opportunity worth thousands and thousands of pounds, take that leap of faith and send in your small business advert to independentadbreak at holly.co or find out more information on our website. 
So, without further ado, this week's winner of the NatWest Independent Ad Break is Moral Earth Company. Over to you. Hello, I'm Kirsty Shaw, founder of Moral Earth Company. I'm also a passionate vegan. My business specialises in screen printing t-shirts for adults and children, focusing upon positive messages about veganism and plant-based lifestyle in order to protect animals and conserve the environment. The fabric used to make our t-shirts are 100% cotton that is certified by the Global Organic Textile Standards. This ensures workers who make our t-shirts and the environment are protected from harm. Chemicals typically used in fabrics are prohibited by the Global Organic Textile Standards. Our branded packaging is both biodegradable and recyclable because we want to reduce our business carbon footprint. In addition, we are part of a tree planting programme and have already contributed towards planting trees in the Amazon rainforest. At Moral Earth Company, we believe everybody should make moral choices when it comes to clothing, the way we treat animals and our environment. So I invite you to place an order with Moral Earth Company and you can start your own ethical journey towards sustainable living. Thank you. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be listened to by thousands of people, take that leap of faith and send in your small business advert to independentadbreaks at holly.co. We're looking for the wonderful stories that only small businesses can tell and have created more information on exactly what we're looking for on our website holly.co. What have you got to lose? Get recording. I can't wait to have a listen. Now back to Conversations of Inspiration. So you had the money, you had the brilliant name, and I'm sure you had your eye on favourite young artists or galleries that were coming up. What was it like when you actually put on your first fair? I mean, I'm about to, in in a few days' time, have my own event. It's my second largest event. It is absolutely nerve-wracking. So what was that first fair like? Well, it was pretty hairy. Uh, (laughs) It takes about, (laughs) I I launched it about a year before the date it was due to be, the first fair. And it took, I think we were, we were only about three months out and the business plan, we had to get to about 90, 100 galleries to make it all work. And for me to not go totally bust. And and we were only at about 30 galleries with a couple of months to go or something. And I thought, oh, my God. And then, um, but I decided to still spend the marketing money. And I thought, if I can just, you know, get those subway posters up and 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 get the, the marketing out there, then people will start seeing it. And and that happened, actually. The galleries started ringing. They said, oh, I've, I've seen these, this, these adverts. And... And it looks really good, and I and I think it's something new. And we were eighty-seven in the end, but it was pretty hairy. And then I lost—I remember I lost half a stone in the week of the fair because I was just running around like a mad ass fly, trying to keep it all together. And and had you you didn't have any experience necessarily in doing this, did you? No, nothing of that scale. And and I had no idea whether people were going to come, whether the galleries were going to sell anything. So I thought, and, and I think this is a, an important lesson, it's not a new one, but it's certainly worth reiterating. I thought, 
if we treat these galleries really, really well, our customers, then even if they don't sell anything, they're going to like working with us and hopefully they'll come back for more. So they did. It's a it's an important one, isn't it? Because I, I it, that takes me back what you've just said to um, back at not in the high street when we started. I remember um, printing up all these beautiful media packs because I'd come from magazines where people had media packs. So I, you know, we thought right, this is what we're going to do. I actually think the folder cost about three pounds each, and then we had the cards and we put those in. And basically, what I wanted to say was. I know you're a small business, but I'm going to treat you like big businesses get treated. I'm going to treat you in a way that is, um, you're important to us. And I think that, that those early days, you know, you you made people feel as they, as genuinely we did feel, important. And it, and it matters. And as you said, you know, a lot of people remember that. So did it just then work? No. I, tell me it didn't just, you just booked the, the 86 in... And then the next year, all 86 rebooked again. Well, I'm trying to think back 20 years, and, I, and I've not got the, a fantastic memory. I get jealous of friends of mine who remind me of things I've done as a teenager or in my 20s. I, th- I, I remember we had 86 galleries. We had about 10,000 visitors came, and they bought a million quid's worth of art. The next year, we had 130, I think, galleries ca- come along. And about 16,000 visitors, and they bought two million quid's worth of art. So those are the raw numbers, but it didn't... So it, it did it, just it, nicely It's certainly build. a lot easier. If you're, do, if you're running a business with events, if the first one doesn't work, then it's, a desi- then it's really hard to recover from. So it's certainly the difficulty gets less, but then I found there's another difficult period which is about five six years in where the novelty factor's worn off Mm. and you've got to keep evolving and changing things and keeping people interested so that they still want to come back each year and see new art and and learn new things and have so how did you do that with affordable art fair then um We've got 14 of them now happen each year. There's been about another 10 cities that it hasn't worked. And if I think back to how long it took for them not to work, it was either the first year or in the first two or three years, really. It wasn't, it wasn't, I think we've got enough momentum by year five, but we just saw a bit of a dip and we saw it quick enough to be able to start making more changes so we'd encourage the galleries hey look you you maybe try another artist or encourage that artist to create a different body of work because it's it's you know we've found a lot of artists over the years have churned out the same thing without really thinking about it well that sells and it's important and it's really important for them the average salary of an artist, income of an artist is about seven, eight grand. So it, they're on the breadline. They've got a. They can't spend six months creating a new body of work and then it and doesn't it not work. Sell. So it's a little bit of gentle encouragement to try get people to try new things. 
I can't believe I put on events now at Holly & Co because before starting Not on the High Street, I used to put on fairs for small businesses and used to curate the stalls uh, called Your Local Fair. But I found, you know, I nearly had a nervous breakdown on that occasion because, you know, if it rained or, you know, the powers that be, you know, things you couldn't control, it really affects, you know, the fact that you're running a physical event on these very days. And it's why I was very happy that the thing called the internet came along um, and I could put the sort of 24 hour a day fair online and this is actually what you're doing next tell me about this because this is very exciting and I remember actually I'm sure you and I chatted many a year ago about this about the fact that you wanted to take the artist the art online Yes. So we've been doing it for two or three years now and learning as we go. And God, it's been a big learning curve because it's a completely different business. It's a tech business rather than an events business. We feel we're making progress and we are definitely on, on the numbers front year on year. And the really exciting thing is that We've never, the, the, to run an, a successful event, an art fair, there has to be enough scale in that city. There's got to be enough galleries that are prepared to go to that. There's got to be enough galleries in, in existence. So, for example, I've spoken over the years to Arts Council Northwest about doing a fair in Manchester, and, and it never got off the ground. And I really feel I still want to reach all those people in the corners of Britain and, and the world who don't have art in their lives. And so this is a great way of doing it. In, if those people live in places that aren't London or New York or Stockholm or, or, or wherever. And so it, we're currently reaching 10 million people around London from a UK perspective, but we're missing another 50 million. So hopefully the internet will enable us to, to do that. And what have you found the biggest change, uh, differences between human beings turning up saying, right, that piece of art has to be mine? You know, you just showed me a photo of a piece that you bought in Melbourne where the walls were painted bright pinks and oranges and then she had a simple piece of art put on there and it moved you. Tell me the difference that you found now taking that online and what you're finding the biggest differences there. Well, I think buying a piece of art is making a connection with an artist, really. You don't have to meet that artist, but you've got to appreciate what that artist has appreciated, be it humour or your favourite beach in Cornwall. And, oh, that, that, that reminds me of that favourite beach where I proposed to my wife, or whatever it might be. So if face-to-face -face, you're able to hear the story from the gallerist or from the artist that helps to build that connection if it's not immediately there in front of you so I am a bit worried that that there won't be as much success online because there isn't the extra story that comes from speaking so I hope that we'll be able to do that with video of the artists in their studio. And that, so that's mm -hmm. a little development that I want to try and... And so 20 years down the line, and you have 13, 14 fairs in 10 cities, including Melbourne, Amsterdam, Hong Kong, Singapore, Stockholm. How do you replicate 
what was a UK creation and you were there and you said you lost half a stone on that first fair, running around like a blue ass fly, getting everything together. Tell me about then taking it abroad. So I naively thought, okay, we've got London crack, this is brilliant. And, and we tried to do it elsewhere in the UK and that was, we, we, we had 15 years in Bristol and I really want to go back to Bristol again and I'd love to be able to take it elsewhere. But I thought, okay, well, let's just think outside Britain and da-da-da. And I thought, well, London's got the city, New York's got Wall Street, similar-sized city, let's try there. And I've learnt over the years, starting there and elsewhere, how art taste is very different. So we can't just take a British landscape to New York. It just wouldn't work. It's got to be the right art because it's sort of a, a local thing. Colour is interesting. So an artist in Scotland will paint with, with, a landscape artist will paint with browns and, and, and greys and an artist in Cornwall will use blues and yellows. An artist in Spain will use reds, hot colours and oranges. Scandinavia it'll be about greys and whites and because of the snow. So art is a very place specific thing or it can be some types of art. So you've got to have the right art. The other thing you've got to have, if you're thinking of taking a product to another location, particularly another country, is, is what the people are like and what their, what their driving drivers are. Why do people want to buy art? And, and so what I learned taking the, the New York example is that in Europe we have our society pretty much formed People in America, I, some people buy art as a way into society. Mm. And so that triggers a whole load of different reasons for, for buying art and what, at what level. And, uh, and so you learn, it's been great to learn different shopping habits, I suppose, and, and the way society works in different countries. And, and what the drivers are, as well as ex finding these amazing different bits of art from around the world. And tell me, logistically, was that a nightmare? It wasn't in your back garden? Yeah, you've got to travel out there. And I used to fly economy six, eight times a year out to New York in, in the early years. Uh, you've got to have a local understanding, really. Glocal is a good word of global and local. Glocal? Glocal. Tell me what that is. If that was in so the Oxford Dictionary, glocal means? It's a, a global approach, but also a local approach. And so, yes, we have our uh, affordable art fair is a sort of global thing, but we can't just charge into a different city and say, well, this is how we do it. We've got to listen to that city and find out what the galleries in that city want, get a feel of the art world in that, in that city and, and what sort of marketing's gonna work for them, not just sort of say, well, this is, this is our campaign. A cookie cutter approach. Yeah. Another thing that's really useful for people thinking about starting to do business abroad is the question will pop up, am I gonna franchise? And I thought about that, but it's really hard to maintain control of uh, a product that you can't touch and feel. If I was making bottles of water, I'd be able to control that. Or if I was at McDonald's, you, can, you control the, the supply lines. 
so that you pretty much know that that franchisee will be able to do it to the standards that you want. But if it's a service business, really hard. So I decided to just go for it and, and take the risk myself. But sort of partner, find someone really key in each country who believes in what you're doing. And, and so I wouldn't launch in a city uh, of course, we'd look at the socioeconomic data, the art scene, the sort of consumerization. But even if I had those, if I didn't find the right fair director to run that event, I wouldn't launch. So you've got to have the right local people. Mm, what good advice. Really good advice. Because I hear it a lot of times, you know, should I license? Should I franchise? How do I get out there? What are those crucial sort of nuggets that I need to have before I do this? Because it is an incredibly scary move. 20 years in, what would you say have been a couple of crucial things that you've now learned about business in general? Gosh, I wish I had, I said to people, when do I need a finance director? And, and two or three people said to me, oh, well, when you get one, you'll, you'll, you'll realise and you wish you'd had them three years ago. <laughs> so, but it does take quite a plunge when you're sort of at 10 to 20 employees and you're doing everything doing the payroll and doing everything yourself at that management level, it's quite a big step to then take on a big salary of, of number two. And uh, yeah, do it sooner rather than later because you'll find, if you don't, you work two people's hours for too many years and you're at the grindstone so much that you can't see the wood from the trees. And actually your job is to move the business forward. Yeah, you know, yeah. without you, you know, the business doesn't move forward. Exactly. So you start off being entrepreneurial and then you get bogged down in management. So I've now recruited some, someone, well, he's worked for me for 10 years now, to be the, my right-hand man to, to run the existing business, which has allowed me to be entrepreneurial again. And I love it. I feel free and able to prod and poke and say, why don't we do one here? And, <laughs> and he's like, oh, no, gosh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. he's, off, he's off his leash. <laughs> mm. I think one of the other questions that I get asked is about this. I've lost the ability to love my business, um, you know, I, because I'm, I'm bogged down in the management, the admin. You know, when is that time to take on that next person? And I'm being so scared about taking on that next person because actually you're, you know, you're handing over what you've really nurtured haven't you and and worked so hard late into the nights and now you want to hand it over to someone else have you had times where you you've wanted to pack it all in what's kept you motivated I think just the art really and I trying to help others to have art in their lives and to help artists and to help galleries that keeps driving me on and you never wanted to give up no, not yet. I've, I've, I've just passed 50. I think at these sort of milestones, birthdays, you do question what you're doing and you reassess. And uh, I don't want this to be the only thing that I achieve in my 
remaining days. And so you, you, you do question how much time you put into everything and nod it up. But no, this is still good. Oh, but this is good to hear. This is good <laughs> to hear. You must get so many wonderful stories as well, because one of my sort of key drivers, I suppose, at Not in the High Street and here is that, you know, um, helping people buy their first home, pay off their mortgage. At Holly & Co, it's um, people listening to this podcast. It's helped them really solve an issue that they were dealing with or get going. They just launched their business because they hear one of these brilliant entrepreneurs talking about how they just didn't know what they were doing either and uh, and it worked out okay it must be one a key driver for you you know because I've heard that you've also have those sort of stories of how the affordable art fairs actually truly affected people's lives yes they didn't exist 20 years ago but I, it feels more like a social enterprise than a commercial business and we do give away a chunk of our profits to help others. We've given over a million and a half quid, I think, at the latest count to art therapy charities, be it post-traumatic stress disorder or troubled children or cancer sufferers or whatever. We've put a lot into helping young artists and, and giving them a leg up at the difficult years after graduation. And that gives me a lot of pride as well. And helping educate people as well, not shoving it down their throat, but we have workshops and demonstrations and so we're teaching people to to have culture in their lives hopefully visual art and certainly you, you learn over the years that giving is just so much more pleasurable it really is it really is I've turned 42 and uh, and I, I definitely didn't realize it 10 10 15 years ago what giving really does to you as a human being it's something that I feel that the more we can get it into our businesses actually the happier the founder will be so your mastermind specialist subject obviously has to be art what's been your favorite piece I know you said um, before this interview you still got walls spare in your home which I can't quite believe but do you have a favorite piece that hangs on your walls it's got to be the family portrait, which is not a painting, but it looks like a painting, but it's a sort of contemporary twist. It's a photographer, and it, the image is derived from a Zoffany 18th century group portrait, because uh, the six of us, we've got four girls, the Ramsettes. <laughs> and so it's a lovely memory, and, you know, that's ultimately what life's all about, is family, isn't it? So... That's got to be the number that's one. That's got to be your number one. And do you have a favourite artist that's coming up right now or one that you just love? Okay, if I could steal any piece of art from yes, any a, art museum... Oh, I wish I'd asked that question. <laughs> it would be The Wanderer Above the Sea of Clouds by Caspar David Friedrich. And it's a painting of a Victorian man in a frock coat with a swagger stick and his hair blowing in the wind at the top of this mountain. And it sort of says, I can conquer this world and do it with style. And it's sort of the, it painted in, in Victorian times. And it was that Victorian entrepreneurial, we can conquer the world and we can do it. 
Gosh, I, I'm looking at you in your blue velvet jacket and your <laughs> paisley shirt and your, your handkerchief coming out of your pocket. And I'm thinking, ah, we might be modelling ourselves on on somebody here. Tell me, um, would you have any advice? So you, you, I'm, I'm surprised to hear this seven, eight thousand pounds that an artist um, earns. Do you have any advice for any artist who is listening in terms of just selling their art and how to get out there? Obviously, to try and apply for the Affordable Arts Fair, of course, but just generally. Well, whether you're an artist or just an entrepreneur and you're a creative person, as long as you've got ideas, and if you're an ideas person, then at the right time in your life, the right entrepreneurial idea will dovetail. So if it's not the right time in your life, don't push to start this business what the actual in terms of what you're doing financially it's not the right time is that yeah. what you mean yes. yeah yeah you might you might feel god I, I can't finish my degree because now is the time to start this business actually reflect use that mentor and if it's not the perfect time financially or whatever then um another idea will come up if you're if you are an ideas person. It's the same for an artist. You can't keep just relying on one idea. You've got to keep having new ideas, create new work. And, and you, if you believe in that and believe you're creating good stuff, then, then fantastic. But do get trained as an artist. I've had over the years so many people who've said, oh, so a friend of a friend's an artist, and they've, and they've not really studied it. They've just not got the skill base and the knowledge base to know what's gone before and what, what the difference between good and bad is. All art can give people pleasure, but if you're going to do it professionally, you need to train As a professionally. Living, you need to train professionally. Yeah. That is a really, yeah. I, I hadn't thought of that because, as you said, it's not just the piece today, isn't it? If you've got 20, 30 years that you want to live off your craft, your, your skill, you need to know what you're doing. Mm. So having a little Insta snoop on you, uh, it looks like you're living a very happy life in Scotland, riding horses with your wife, um, the Ramsettes, is that what they're called? The four daughters, running your international business. It all sounds just so perfect. I'm sure um, like any Instagram account, it's uh, 90% something else and 10% on Instagram. Um, Have you ever struggled with that balance of life? Um, in terms of running your business and sort of the rest of it, the rest of the stuff that we know is the most important? Yes, all of us have three key things that that fill our lives. There's business, family, self. And I think getting the balance right is, is great. And I spent too long on the business front in, in, let's say, 10 years ago, and I didn't give the family enough attention. And I was probably doing too much sport. And so it's always worth having a reflection every few months as to whether you've got the balance right. And rebalancing it or apologising profusely? A bit of both, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in all my interviews, I like to ask someone that's inspired you that you could sort of personally recommend that I interviewed, someone that's given you the inspiration to be you. So when I was at school, we got talks from people who'd been politicians. All the chat at school was 
whether you were going to be a banker or a solicitor or a doctor or something in the city. And, and no one really talked about being an entrepreneur and starting a business. And the first guy who really came to my attention that you could do that, you, that was equally valid, was Richard Branson. So he's the man. And actually, he's a great role model because he is wacky, because you need to think out of the box and do something different. And if you, if you try and replicate what someone else has done, you, you, it's that much harder because you've got to do it better rather than newer and differently. Mm. And if this is a roller coaster that we're in on, tell me what has been your greatest low on this journey? Oh, uh, my uh, accountant for the first eight years or so of the business, lovely guy in his 60s. I totally trusted him and he was stealing from me. And I had a lot, a lot of money go and mm. it, we survived financially. I got the money back, but it was a real blow to, to how much you can trust people. And, and you, I just didn't have the right checks and balances in place. I was too trusting. And he was just circumstances of his life. He'd taken on too much financial commitment mortgage-wise. His daughter was ill and he needed money and he saw an, an opportunity. And did that give you a real blow of trusting people? Yeah, yeah. Mm. It really hit me hard for a, for a year or two. And, um, but you've got to, as an entrepreneur, you've got to trust people and give them the space to do their jobs. And, you, you know, if you're crawling all over them, they're never going to flourish. Mm. And, mm. and they've got to feel they've got their own sense of responsibility and, and their own opportunity to be creative and make their mark. So I think I do delegate reasonably well, but certainly on the financial side, I've thought a lot about the right level of checks and balances so that temptation isn't there if circumstances turn against them. And on the opposite of that, up on the high of the roller coaster, wind in your hair, what has been that most precious moment or one of them that you could share with us? Well, yeah, I thought about this. My greatest high, I thought about adrenaline highs, non-business-wise, and it's got to be, you mentioned the horses, I'm one of the older amateur jockeys around, and I love it. So my two big highs were getting round the Grand National course 15 years ago in the amateur equivalent, going over beaches and all that. And, and then last year having a ride at the Cheltenham Festival, which is the sort of the big jumps meeting in the UK. And um, so those were my two adrenaline highs. For the non-adrenaline high, again, I'm afraid it's not business. It's, it's Natasha, my wife, and our four wonderful Ramsettes. But they still haven't formed a band. That's what I wanted. That's what I bred them for. <laughs> my goodness well that will be uh yeah i that 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 will be something won't it to put on your instagram when, when that absolutely happens thank you so much will for your time today what an incredible story an incredible ramsey dynasty of inspiring leaderships you know from army to art the admiral ramsey should be a household name and we should 
all learn about him at school. And I know that that's what you and your siblings want to do is make sure that we really understand what an amazing thing that he did for us all. Well, it wasn't just him. He was just a figurehead and it was all the people who, who served under him as well. And it's remembering all they did, really. So we're trying to form a little, start up a little museum, set up a charity for it um, to try and keep that alive. Because for for me, age 50 and, and my sort of baby boomer age, we sat on our grandfather's knees who told us what they'd done in the war. But the children today, it's too far distant. So we've got to keep it alive. But also now you've pioneered a movement. You've really changed the way we buy art in this country and other countries. You've helped so many artists and helped them make their art a living and so you must have you know that's a huge impact and you must be very very proud I love the affordable art fair and it really is an exciting moment in my calendar every year as I said I go with my family unless they're going to stop me spending in which case I just leave them at home and so for me and from all the artists out there thank you Will truly for doing something pretty damn amazing and it's at this moment that I ask you to read out a letter that you've prepared about to your younger self. I don't know what you're going to say, but from me and everyone else, thank you so much for sharing a part of your soul with us today. Well, thank you. It's been a real joy. It's, it's my little Desert Island Discs moment because I'm never going to get on that. But uh, here is, and I'm going to do a little twist, if I may, on well, I the letter to self. Else. But it's going to, I've... The, the Ramsettes are 19, 17, 13, 11. And, uh, and I wrote a letter to, to the 19-year-old last year when she reached 18. And so I want to write one to, to the 17-year-old to the in, in a couple of months' time when she reached 18. But then I thought it's also a good idea to write one to the 13-year-old who's just started a new school. So this is first one to the 13-year-old and second to the 18-year-old, but it equally could apply to being written to my younger self. Dear Alexandra, you're off to big school, age 13, the next chapter in a life of several chapters. A time for some fatherly advice. Work hard at your schoolwork, but not too hard, as it shouldn't hamper the extracurricular things you want to do. Exams aren't the most important thing, even if your teachers are always telling you that. Be yourself and people will love you for it. Don't give up. This is a bit my father said to me when I was 13. Don't give up anything lightly as you may regret it. Focus on your strengths and for you, Alexandra, sport and art at this point. Work hard on being the best you can at them. People will respect you for that. And the successes you have will give you the confidence to not worry about what people think of you. In fact, in your teens and 20s, you think or worry that everyone is thinking about you. When you're 40, you don't care what people think. When you're 60, you realise that no one was ever thinking about you anyway. So don't worry about what other people think. Be yourself. Do what makes you happy. Hang around with people who make you happy. I'm thinking of you a lot. Big hugs and kisses, Daddy. 
Second one to my about-to-be 18-year-old, Isabella. Darling Isabella, wow, 18 today. It makes me feel very old, but what a milestone with you, with your most fun, carefree, and free years immediately ahead of you. 18 is perhaps a good milestone to try and give you some words of wisdom. I believe you make your own luck and that you do this by working hard, playing hard and trying harder. Be nice to everyone, be they a lord or a lorry driver. Care about things and people, but don't take care because you have to take risks to achieve things. Live life to the full because we only have one of them. There's a little quote, today is the first day of the rest of your life. I like that. We all die, although I see you and your sisters as my continuing survival. Try to do something which leaves the world a bit better. Find a mentor, someone you can take advice from, who has been there, done that, and is wise. He or she will help you to see the woods from the trees, to make you think twice about what's important, and to help you to make the right decisions. I've never had mentors and wish I had. If I'd had a mentor in my 20s for my army career, I would have at least tried for SAS selection and I would have been a better leader, less selfish. If I'd had a mentor in my 30s and 40s when I was working too hard and playing sport too much, they'd have helped me to get a better balance between work, family and self. Follow your dreams. You've been fortunate to have had a fantastic education at a private school and to have been born into a family with more money than many others. Never take that for granted. My granny wisely told me, a penny saved is a penny earned. Try to leave your children at least one penny more than you inherited. Family should always come first, however hard it is to live with them or accept their opinions. You've seen me start and build affordable art for over the years, but don't feel that you have to join the business. You must follow a path that makes you happy. If you start your own business, don't follow the crowd. Do something that no other business is doing, in that location at least. Finally, Mother Teresa wrote a poem with excellent advice for how to approach your life. I'm not going to read it all, but some of the lines. Life is, is the title. Life is an opportunity. Benefit from it. Life is beauty. Admire it. Life is a challenge. Meet it. Life is a duty. Complete it. Life is sorrow, overcome it. Life is a tragedy, confront it. Life is an adventure, dare it. Life is luck, make it. Life is too precious, do not destroy it. Life is life, fight for it. Lots of love, Daddy. Oh. <laughs> I've never had anyone... Um take that approach of writing to their children and it's uh, very emotive because it's it is um a really beautiful thing and 
seems like you're a really, really good dad and uh, they must be very proud of you. So thank you so much for sharing such intimate thoughts. Um, and uh, yeah, let's hope they listen to this podcast. <laughs> thank you, Will. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> oh, my Thanks, Nat West, again for sponsoring this podcast. It wouldn't exist without them. And I know how many small businesses this podcast is actually helping. It's great to partner with an organisation that believes in empowering business owners. To make use of their free NatWest Business Hub, which is full of information, tips and insights to help business owners meet their goals, go to natwestbusinesshub.com. Also, have you heard of their incredible mission to help 400,000 more women start a business by 2025? To help female founders launch and scale their business, they have launched Back Her Business, a programme which helps women prepare their business idea for crowdfunding. Now, here's the best bit. Most of the funding will come from the crowd, where NatWest has teamed up with Crowdfunder. But the bank will provide a top-up in funding and will be offering up to 50% of an individual's fundraising target, capped at £5,000, for certain successful projects. Yes, you heard right. You could win the ability to have the amount you raised, if £5,000 or under, matched by NatWest. I I wish I'd had this opportunity available when I launched Not on the High Street or even Holly & Co. Head to natwestbackerbusiness.co.uk to find out more. Also, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Conversations of Inspiration. My mission is to help everyone build a business doing what they love. I've seen how happy founding a business based on your passions can make you and I want everyone to have that fulfilment. Happiness is the new rich and using your business as a force for good is the new way of doing commerce. So let's create a nation of happiness happy entrepreneurs that are changing the world for the better. Can I ask you a question? Might you help me on this mission? If you like what you've listened to, would you rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast provider? It will help others find this podcast and may just be the inspiration they need to follow their dreams. Thanks so much. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown You will find that all the things that I have said Will come to when you are lying in your bed And if you want your friends to come